All right, welcome. This is episode number 66 of the Bearded Marketers Podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. Every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast, we bring the latest in internet marketing, social media, paid search, search engine optimization, whatever else is going on in the world of internet marketing. But we bring it to you with no sponsorships, no shout outs, no companies we don't use that we recommend on the show. We also bring it to you while drinking scotch. What kind are you drinking today? Oh, I'm going back to my roots. Glenn <laughs> Fittage 15, neat, a little bit more than a double, but that's what we'll say for the podcast. I'm doing Balvenie 12, neat, okay. Okay. single. I'm not crazy. Well, <laughs> we'll get you there. So let's go ahead and kick off this episode. I'm excited. I don't know if you are. No, but... I hate these things. <laughs> but this week, another interview, which before we get into that, if you're interested in potentially being on a show... First of all, if you're interested in a sales pitch, there are other podcasts out there for you that probably will be a better fit. But if you have good things to contribute to the audience or you listen and go, and the bearded guys are really good, here is somewhere where I have an expertise that I think I can really bring to the show. Beard's not a requirement. It's preferred. It's pre- but yeah, it is. We have a fake one we can mail you that you can put on <laughs> while you're talking with us. But give us a shout out on our Twitter handle. We're pretty active on that. You can reach us on the website or you can give us a call at 904 270 9603 and we'll get back to you for today's episode we have an interview with michael agard if you're not familiar with him big name in the cro space of content verve infamacy is is that a word i think so (laughs) but some other topics that we're going to talk about today forms i think most websites actually have them in one way or another and we wanted to talk about how can you pull them off successfully and what are some pitfalls to avoid based on some of the experience that we have and case studies out there. Also, some interesting information to go over with Google spam updates. I don't think we covered it on the show, but recently Google rolled out what they called the payday loan update. We're going to talk about some of the data and things that percolated from that update. And then we also have our dedicated Google corner, which will cover some juicy news bits. But let's go ahead. Let's see what Mr. Michael Agard has to say. You want to kick that off for us, Rob? I sat down with Michael Agard a few weeks ago. I met him at Mark Sherpa's something something summit in New York. <laughs> Don't quote me on the name of that. I think it was about website optimization, something okay. along those lines. We met up and I thought it would be great to have him on the podcast for an interview to talk to us about conversion rate optimization, otherwise known as CRO. So let me just hand it over to him. Hello, I'm Michael Agard, hailing from beautiful, wonderful Copenhagen, Denmark. I am what I like to call an optimizer of websites and decision-making processes. A more formal title is Senior Conversion Rate Optimization Consultant. I work for a company here in Copenhagen called AppCore. I just joined up with them. I used to be self-employed and I am the founder of the blog Content Verve. And uh, yeah, I spend uh, most of my time awake on this planet working with clients and helping them test and optimize their websites in order to get more people to do what they want them to do. And I work with everything from e-commerce to nonprofit organizations and pretty much everything in between. So one of the first things I wanted to have him explain to our audience was ex- what exactly is CRO? You know, I think it's kind of one of those buzzwords that's mm-hmm. been picking up some steam recently. So I asked him, what is CRO? We're trying to get as many people as possible to do what we want them to do uh, once they get to the website. And so what we're really doing is optimizing decision-making processes. And so what I try to focus on in my work is always what is the goal of the website? What is that we want people to say yes to when they get to the website? And how are we going to get them from the initial kind of contact 
point to that uh, final conversion goal. So instead of just sitting down looking at a website and going, so how do we make this better? <laughs> you know, subjectively or saying, how do we make this prettier or more awesome? I like to flip it around and say, well, what is the goal? Uh, what are the decisions? What are the processes that people need to go through? Where do we have some friction points? Where are the weak spots on the website? How are we going to, you know, attack all those different points and then find out how to make it it's easy and as attractive as possible for our potential customers to say yes to whatever it is we're offering them. That's kind of my take on it. So one of the topics, and he's had a few that he is following recently that he's testing with some of his clients. One of them is exit pops or pop-ups just in general. And this is something that... I know how that, I feel about these. Corey, yes, I know you're very passionate about this. But he had some interesting insights in terms of how do you time some of these things, not necessarily around the content and the pops themselves, but the timing of them. And he tested a few tools that allow you to try to guess it when people are trying to leave your website and try to throw a pop in their face mm. then. So I know you love those especially. Here's some insights he has on pop-ups. Yeah, so I, I kind of I go through different phases of, of different things I like that, that they get me really, really fired up about, you know, learning more about. And that's the basic premises of testing is you want to get inside. You want to learn and understand the mechanics of what's going on in your in your online marketing and on your website and what really works. I've been doing this for a long time and I've probably not made all the mistakes you can make, but I've made a hell of a lot of them and I've also been called out for them. You know, making mistakes is the best way to learn. So especially about test validity and stuff I've learned about in the last couple of years and gotten better at that. Also just making sure that your tests are running correctly and stuff like integrating your test results into analytics. But yeah, I go through different phases of stuff that really gets fired up. And lately I've been really excited about testing pop-ups but not so much the pop-ups themselves, but more like the conditions under which you show the pop-up to your website visitors. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. So what I found out anyways is that it has huge impact on your conversion rate for the pop-up, how you trigger it. So one thing I've been really interested in testing lately is actually exit intent. Exit intent isn't really a new thing, but there's a couple of tools that are featuring it as a new feature. And Neil Patel started using it and... <laughs> Usually when Neil does something, everybody starts doing it also. And what I find kind of fascinating is that there's a tendency that people just jump on board with a new trend without really considering whether it actually makes sense or whether it's going to work. So the basic premise of Exit Intent triggering your pop-up is that the pop-up software identifies behavior that your visitors are displaying that indicates they're going to leave the website and then that triggers the pop-up which makes sense you know instead of bothering people while they're on the website we're bothering when they're trying to leave the website so i've been testing exit intent now on i think five or six different websites and everything I've tested it against better than Exit which is kind of fascinating. So, uh, I mean, all kind of different delays showing the pop-up right away. I mean, they've all performed better than Exit So that's kind of interesting. So I, a motivation, of course, has a huge role to play here. So if it's a pure sign up to our newsletter intrusive message, well, then there's a huge difference between, you know, for example, 30-second delay and Exit What I see on my own blog on content is I have a, an ebook that I offer and it's a popular book and it's relevant to the people who to my target audience and it's all about you know simple tips for optimizing for conversion rate optimization and optimizing your website so it's relevant and I don't see that much of a difference between the 30 second delay and exit intent on, on my blog although there is a difference but you have to take motivation into consideration here so I thought that was pretty fascinating and I mean on most websites I've been uh, where I've tested different delay times it's 30 second delay seems to perform best I I've seen one instance where a 10 second delay was better, but as compared to one minute or you're triggering the pop-up right away, 
30 second delay seems to be a sweet spot. I've also done a lot of testing on, you know, loading the, the pop-up on second page view, and that one completely sucks. It really doesn't get very many conversions according to my research anyway. But so what I'm trying to get at here is, is a couple of different points. One thing is that, of course, the offer, whatever you're offering, whatever you're pitching, and the way you pitch it, you know, in the communication, in the pop-up, of course, has a huge role to play and the way you design it. But something that people usually don't think about is actually the other aspects, the other aspects that you don't see with the naked eye when you're designing your pop-up. And that is, for example, how you present it, under which conditions. And so I think that's really interesting. And I think that's a point you can draw on, on other areas also. Instead of just going for the obvious, think about it, all the other things that are going on that might affect the decision-making process of your uh, potential uh, customers or your, your you know, visitors, your prospects. And also, uh, instead of just kind of assuming that whatever seems logical is also going to work on your website, you know, be a little bit more critical and actually start experimenting with yourself to find out what works for you. I'm just sharing my experience, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, exit and said will never work or that 30-second delay is always best or whatever. I'm just saying this is my experience, and I'm going to give you a little bit of inspiration so you can start testing it on your own website. So some great insights from Michael Agard from Content Verve. I think he on... put some of my concerns be at bay or I'm glad that people are actually thinking about these pop-ups with a little bit more foresight than just hey everyone else is doing it let's do it too well I don't th I don't think he probably speaks for the industry I think that's true that's, I mean I think he is definitely thinking about business. it but <laughs> it is such a huge thing especially with all these internet marketing blogs like damn it every time I go to one the throwing pops in my face regardless of how well they work I just feel like they're annoying and there are certain things you just can't can't devolve to in internet right. marketing Anyway, so we did talk about some other things, which I think we're going to cover on next week's podcast. We're going to split this up into a two-parter. Two, to be continued. We don't, yeah, we don't want... What we don't want is these episodes to turn into full-on interviews the entire time. We, mm -hmm. we got some other things to cover. I think next week we're going to talk about form design and best practices in uh, conversion rate optimization. Speaking of form design, I know that's something you want to like talk about. Yeah, exactly, on this podcast. So hit us. I did want to cover forms because I think sometimes on our podcast we get very specific. You know, we'll talk about something related to e-commerce or we'll talk about something that's related specifically to lead gen. And I think that forms is one of those topics that has quite a bit of crossover into all the verticals that we might cover on this podcast. And I really wanted to cover them because, one, I look at forms all day long and get frustrated on how poorly they're implemented. And I think that we can communicate some very easy tactical takeaways for people to consider when they're designing forms that can go a long way that we've seen as a result of testing or just talking with users as well. So I just wanted to run over some of the quick fixes or I would say I hate using this but some of the best practices or at least some things to consider when you're designing. Maybe they don't really fit for you but it should be some things that you're going to be considering. So full disclosure some of these tips are going to be taken from a Crazy Egg article that we looked at, which if you want to search for it, it's 10 little fixes that have big impact on your web form conversions. But a lot of them are also taken from our own experience. So we're going to augment some from that article as well. I think two things that people need to consider in the multi-device world that we live in is understanding that particularly for tablet and mobile users, how do we need to design our forms to not make people want to punch their phone or tablet? How do we make these very usable, particularly for these devices where you don't have the necessarily the accuracy of something like a mouse to get into form fields? So 
One thing I would mention is making sure that you're coding them to actually be touch friendly, where it's recognizing the form fields. If you want to get super fancy, then what you can also do is by naming your fields certain standardized values, the keyboards on said devices will actually recognize what type of form field it is and potentially give you a different keyboard that's very relevant to the data that you're asking for. Phone number is a perfect example of this, or email. I think that's the type field. It actually, Correct. you know, some browsers were actually sort of try to auto-validate for you as mm -hmm. well if you if you said like an email or a phone as a type oh, field. Oh yeah, so. now we're talking. Also, people need to understand that spacing can become a huge problem or a consideration for these devices as well. When you're working with desktops, typically running with either a touchpad or a mouse, and those are pretty accurate devices. Well, when you move to the mobile space where it's a small screen or even tablets and we're dealing with fingers, it becomes difficult to be very accurate. So if you're stacking your form fields with not much padding or spacing in between them, it can be for some people a frustrating experience to try to get into the form fields that they intend to and fill out that information. So it might behoove you to, one, if you don't have the ability to code responsively and change out your layout depending on the viewport of the browser to add some padding in there universally for all your visitors or if you're running with a more responsive or you have a mobile or tablet platform make sure that you are again designing for success for these devices and taking into consideration some of the constraints that some of these devices have and the caveats that you need to take into consideration when you are designing for them also there's pretty well established case studies on the breaking points of how much data and information you should be asking for people. Now, I think it's difficult sometimes looking at these benchmark studies, like I'm looking at one right now from Eloqua, because I think it depends on what you're giving people and what you've done to get them into this process on how much they're willing to give you. Do keep in mind that the more you ask for people, the higher likelihood of them to start thinking about is all this effort really worth what I'm getting? Us as marketers sometimes get a little bit greedy in that we would love to know like what company you're from and how'd you hear about us and all these other type of great data points for us to narrow down and hone our marketing efforts. But sometimes it's finding that correct time and place and when to do that. And maybe you need to wait for that or ask at a different time. Or I know that we've had some good success on breaking that up into steps. A lot of the best practices and air quotes out there is to avoid adding multiple steps into a process. But we've actually found that particularly when you're trying to collect data, sometimes breaking up a very large screen into multiple steps can actually yield you some conversion gains because it feels even though I'm having to go to multiple screens the amount of effort that I'm exerting feels less even though it's not because I'm faced with less fields on every screen it feels like I'm having to exert less than being presented with a huge screen of 30 form fields so that might be an option for you if you need to get that data maybe consider breaking it up. So one that's kind of interesting and that I find a lot of sites do, which I don't know if makes a huge difference. They mentioned the Crazy Egg article and I think it does bear consideration, but putting field placeholders without field names within your form. So what I'm talking about here is, let's say you have a form that's asking your first and last name. And instead of putting static text above those form fields that say first and last name, we're going to remove that and we're going to put first and last name directly into those fields that will clear if you focus on them. 
The problem that that presents for some people is if they don't immediately complete, they focus on it. Sometimes people just forget about what they actually need to put into that field and might generate some errors. So even though it might look uglier to put field titles on top of your form inputs, it might be a better actual user experience for people instead of having it just placeholders put into the fields themselves. Another concern I have with that is, you know, oftentimes... I run into that on, for example, a shipping address Mm -hmm. information type thing. And what I'll do is I'll fill the entire thing out and I'll look back over it quickly just to glance to make sure everything is correct. But I I can't do that if if there aren't any field labels on anything. I'm not sure if I put things in the right location. So that's another thing to keep in mind. True, that's a good point. It may be okay for things like a login, you know, put in your email and password. That may be okay. But you have a complex form that people may need to go back and check over. Mm-hmm. If there are no longer any field labels, it makes it hard for them to make sure everything is correct. Right. So one of the last few I'll cover is, and this is actually from the Crazy Egg article, and I think they make a good point, is address common concerns above your form and setting the expectations correctly. So in their example, they use FreshBooks. In their form, where they're collecting company name and email to create their account, they lead with a headline to squash some of your concerns getting into this. So anytime with a free trial, especially with a product like FreshBooks, one might think that there might be some catches later down the road. And the headline on their form page before you even get into the form, so they create account pages, try it for free, setup only takes a minute, no obligation or credit card required. What they're doing there is addressing some of the anxiety that you might have completing that form. And a lot of people tackle that different ways, whether that's testimonials or the infamous security seals, if you still want to use those in the SSL certs, things like that. But think about some of those concerns that people might have as they're inputting some of that information. You want to provide the evidence and really prove your case on why people want to convert or fill out this form to arrive at whatever destination. So think about those types of things. Some of the other topics about forms that I think bear mentioning is reinforcement is key. So as people are going down along a process, communicate with them. Talk about the benefits of your service, things that people have experienced, or remind them about the key differentiating factors or your value proposition throughout to help them finally hand over that information that you're seeking. Be careful of the field size. And so what I mean about that is many times I arrive to websites and they're collecting information and their field sizes are huge. My concern at that point is I arrive at a page and even though you might not be asking me that much information, if your field sizes are very large, immediately in my mind, it feels like I'm going to have to do a lot of work. If I see all these huge fields, I'm already anticipating I'm going to have to write a book to actually sign up for these things. I know that there's probably an argument for aesthetics, making things fit correctly and align properly, but be careful of your field sizes because there is kind of a psychological trigger of, man, I might have to do a lot of work to create this. And I thought it was going to be an easy process. Error handling, I think we could do a separate even topic covering yeah, that. Absolutely. But people really need to spend some time. If you're going to do validation on forms, you have to do it right. Don't make people go on a where is Waldo search on trying to fix their forms. There's a lot that needs to go into where those errors need to generate and how you communicate those. But that is like paramount, even more so to me, at least in form design. You need to yeah. spend a lot of time on how error handling works. People are shockingly stupid. Dumb. <laughs> yes, and true. you need to throw errors next to the fields themselves. Big mm-hmm. red box like X's next Provide to examples. the error fields. Yes, exactly. It's, it's shocking how people can mess up simple form fields. 
because the errors aren't specific enough. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'm going to say is be careful of modal box forms. Again, coming back around to tablet mobile devices, modal boxes are really popular now doing pop-ups like you were talking about, but a lot of people are bringing forms into that realm as well. And using forms sometimes on modal boxes with these tablets and mobile devices can be a janky experience at best. So just be careful if you're using some of these more technology forward HTML elements that again, that you have really good cross browser and device support for those. So just be really careful of those. Speaking of tablets and mobile devices, I came across something the other day when I was filling out a fairly complex form on my phone. And I think it was it was for a purchase of something. And I, I'm kicking myself right now because I don't remember which e-commerce retailer this was. But essentially, I had filled out my cart, put the products in there, and I was filling out the shipping address section. And it had up at the top, looks like you're on a mobile device, uh, enter your email and we'll email this shopping cart to you mm. uh, so you can purchase on Later your desktop. On. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, this is something that in theory, as a marketer, you don't want to do, right? You want to close the sale. Sure. Let's always be closing. It's almost like a basket recovery ahead of time, right? Like preemptively. Like, no, we don't want your money right now. Yeah, exactly. Come back later. For me, at least personally, I don't purchase things most of the time on my phone because it, it does just take too long. Mm -hmm. You know, all the things you were talking about on mobile devices, it takes too long and it's too much of a pain in my ass to fill it out. And oftentimes, too, autocompletes and things like that that I have on my desktop don't work the same way or on sometimes my phone. maybe you're time constrained as well you know right. sometimes when i'm at a desktop i have more time allotted or i'm at work or whatever whereas on a mobile device i don't necessarily have 10 or 15 minutes to yeah. dedicate you know moving through a process and like to pension zoom on the 50 different sure. places on the page where i need to read something <laughs> anyway so i did use it popped in my email address fired off an email to me I got it immediately, and then I just went over to my desktop uh, an hour or two later and, and completed the purchase there, and it worked flawlessly. So that's an example of something. I don't think that's going to work for everybody, mm -hmm. but for certain scenarios, especially if your products, I think, maybe your shipping or anything you're asking for in your cart is beyond the realm of a normal purchase. So maybe you have to set up certain delivery schedules mm -hmm. or there's complex, uh, yeah, I want a gift wrapped, but I also want a message on it. You know, like if there's mm -hmm. there's things you you need people to do that are outside the realm of normal things, then maybe that's an option you look into. Good point. All right, so you're going to tell us a little bit more about how Google, <clears throat> in their ongoing efforts to combat spam, how is that working out for them? All right, so this is a um, blog post from CognitiveSEO.com. Uh, the headline is, Did Google Finally Kill the Spam from the Serfs? This is a case study. So for those of you out there in podcast listener land who aren't aware, Google has been going through a few updates as of late that are titled Payday Loans 1, 2, and 3. And the goal is to basically get rid of, and it's not just limited to payday loans, but if that's category, that's the category of sites they're going after. So things like payday loans, buy Viagra, buy Cialis, I mean, all the sort of pharmaceutical stuff, mm -hmm. all the really heavy spam stuff, where if someone's going to leave a spam comment on your WordPress blog, it's, it's for these. one of these <laughs> categories. <laughs> uh, so they're really trying to go after this stuff. You know, it's been, I mean, I would say almost like a decade now. It, for as long as Google's been around, this has been a problem. And so they're really trying to attack some of this stuff. So Which anyway, so... able to make money online. Right. So <laughs> the latest rollout is Payday Loan 3.0. I think this rolled out a couple weeks ago. So this is an analysis of, let's look at pre-Payday Loan 3.0, and then let's look at after. And the specific query they looked at was by Viagra. So prior to this, there was it was basically all spam. After this, it is no spam. Gotcha. So glorious results, right, on the surface. Of course. They dug a little bit deeper at some of the backlink profiles for some of the sites now that were ranking highly for by Viagra. 
and some interesting results. So they weren't outright spam sites anymore, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but they were sites that I think most would consider to be spammy-er than... Right, like, so we wouldn't call these white hat sites. We'd call okay. them maybe gray hat, mm -hmm. but still ranking well for what are some seriously high money keywords. Right. And basically their takeaway from this was, look, you know, Google can only remove so many of the these sorts of sites. Ultimately, any site that's going to rank for Buy Viagra is going to be forced to use strategies that maybe wouldn't be considered completely white hat. Just because uh, of the competitive landscape. Right. And I mean, who the hell's going to link to a BioVarag right. website, right? True, you true. know, how the hell are you ever going to get links for that? I mean, mm -hmm. you have to sort of rely on getting links from unrelated websites and, and things of that nature, which normally wouldn't work well for other sites. Maybe get you a Google slap <laughs> along the way. True. So the takeaway was basically, you know, these are the least rotten of the rotten apples in the group. So we're forced to, you know, rely on this. And if we didn't use these types of sites, you would just be looking at WebMD, Mayo Clinic, and <laughs> right. Wikipedia articles. Which is maybe Viagra. not the intent of the person searching. If I'm looking for Bio Viagra, I'm not necessarily looking to research at that point. Right. I'm actually looking to potentially buy some. Well, and that was actually Viagra. one of the comments on the article itself is like, who cares necessarily? I mean, looking outside of this, who cares if maybe this site itself has some spammy things that it's done in its past. But if the site itself isn't like a spam ripoff, mm -hmm. whatever, I mean, it, does it maybe still deserve to rank well when right. everything else is going overboard with all of their black hat techniques? So anyway, interesting thing, two weeks later, again, Google is overwhelmed with spam <laughs> websites. So whatever the spammers are doing, they've sort of figured it out and they're back ranking inside Google. So I guess we're now waiting on a payday loans 4.0 from Google to help oh, yeah. clean things up. One more comment I had on this, which is that most of these sites now, the way that they're ranking is through what is called parasite hosting, which for anyone running a WordPress blog, I'm sure it's been hacked and yes. has been parasite hosted, which essentially means that your blog that was about, uh, I don't know, underwater basket weaving, that's like <laughs> a default weird thing, has been taken over and now sells Viagra and has Viagra content on it. That's the typical technique that they've used in the past. And this is what sort of a lot of these Parasite hosting sites were knocked out and, and Payday Loan 3.0. But now two weeks later, Parasite hosting has been revamped and now is, is taken over the, the SERPs again. So if you have a WordPress blog out there, keep an eye out on, which incidentally mine was hacked yesterday and had <laughs> Still to better. get rid of all the Levitra pills that were being sold on one of my WordPress blogs. You know, just interesting to keep up to date with what's going on in the world of Google in terms of spam and SEO and parasite hosting and what are all the black hat guys doing to rank well, it always is important to keep up with what's going on in the world of black hat to make sure, number one, that you're not doing what they're doing accidentally so you don't get a Google slap. Oh, yeah. But also just to keep aware of what, you know, what works and how we could maybe leverage this into a white hat technique. Or anyway, slightly off-white. I don't want to get myself <laughs> into more trouble. That's why I don't mention the websites I own on this podcast. Smart <laughs> man. All right, All right, so speaking of Google, we're going to wrap it up with our infamous Google Corner. What's happening in Mountain View and in the Google ecosystem? Well, one, we got to give ourselves a pat on the back because obviously Google listens to our podcast because yes. what they have announced is they're getting rid, at least temporarily, of authorship photos and search engine results, which we've covered quite a bit on this podcast. Rob hates them. I don't want to see with other people. With passion. I mean, I think in some instances it makes sense, like if it's a, a blog or something like that, but I don't want to see authorship photos for things that I don't necessarily intend to see them for. And plus just people have awkward pictures and just, it's just, 
I think it was an interesting idea, just executed maybe a bit poorly. I, I think people abused them, like oh, like true. a lot of other techniques. It was a way that people saw to increase click-through rates on their Well, because they saw those benchmarks. 500% right. gain click-throughs. And so people were using authorship in places where they probably shouldn't have been. Anyway, so... Google listens to this podcast, so you should tell all your friends <laughs> because they took our advice. Uh, the other thing we wanted to cover as well is considering video as a marketing tactic. Now, this seems pretty self-explanatory because we live in the age of rich media and things like that, but there's some interesting case studies out there that have been released recently. Uh, there's a good search engine watch article actually on it, which we'll tweet out later in the week. By the way, shout out, nice on the redesign. Website was long overdue for it. Uh, there are some interesting parts of it, but overall looking very uh, almost newspaper-ish. But anyways, moving right along, one of the interesting cases that they talk about is since about 2007, Google has introduced this concept of universal search. What do we mean by that? When you search something in Google, you don't get that boring ass results page where it's just links to web pages. Instead, you get videos coming through. You might have Wikipedia articles. You might have local results, things like that. That is called universal search. And that has been creeping up more and more as a percentage of their results pages. At this current point, it's about 81% of queries return a universal search results page. Now, what does that mean for you and how does that relate to videos? Well, out of those 81% of the time that they return that, 65% contain video as a suggested returned result with some examples for people to click on. So Google has been going down this path further and further to bring back richer results. And as a result of that, video has grown higher and higher. In fact, videos outpace all their other snippets that they'll bring into the results pages, things like images, maps, shopping, news. Videos does much better than all of those. So it's a viable tactic for you to really focus on maybe in 2014 for your business because Google has seen the power of video and is returning that more and more to visitors. Also some encouraging news, YouTube's market share of that has been decreasing. And over time, Google has been looking at other video platforms out there to pull in their results. So you're also not going to be hampered by always having to potentially produce your content on YouTube, which does have some limitations and concerns. They're now looking outside of that more and more. So video is something you probably need to be concentrating on. One of the people that will give a shout out to that, check out Wisty if you're new to the video space. Not only do they have a great product, but they have a great learning center to help you get started with video. How do you accomplish that easily, but tactfully? Use your time with the most efficiency, and I think you will find some interesting results with that because I know that we have. That's going to do it for us on this episode number 66. Thank you so much for your time. If you enjoyed yourself, number one, share with a friend, colleague, a lover, as Rob would say. Number two, leave us a review. It would be greatly appreciated. We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. Wherever you found us, a review would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you'd like us to cover something on the show, potentially you're struggling with something, maybe the boss is yelling at you, you don't know where to turn, or you went, hey, 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 bearded guys, you forgot something, reach out to us. We are on Twitter and we're quite active there. You can give us a call at 904-270-9603 or reach out to us on thebeardmarketers.com where you can also check out our great video section as well and maybe suggest a topic there. But that's going to do it for us. This is Robin Corey. Thank you so much for your time and we'll see you next week. Keep. Keep.